We pray, Lord, this morning that you would anoint this service, and Lord, that we would leave here as changed men and women. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Turn with me. Uh, oh, before I have you turn there, I do have... This Thursday night, I had mentioned this. The Lord put this on my heart. I'm not 100% ready, but God said do it anyway. So I'm doing it. So if you, if you see anything on that list or things you think relate to that list, that's fine. If you think you see something that relates to that list and, and you say, wow, I have struggled with that or I am struggling with that and uh, what does God, does God have a prescription? Doctors have prescriptions. Does God have a prescription? I'm here to tell you he does, and we're going to talk about it, and I'll have a stool up here, and it'll be somewhat interactive if you want to be interactive. If you want to sit there and say, I'm not saying a word. You don't have to say a word. God will say a word to you. So that will be this Thursday night, June the 2nd at 7 o'clock. I, I chose 7 o'clock because I asked some people what time, and I don't get off work in time, so 7 it is. Could have been a little bit earlier, but I wanted to make sure we could accommodate uh, anyone that wants to come out. So if that, uh, if that speaks to you, we'd love to have you come join us this Thursday night. I think it'll be uh, a blessing. God, uh, I can tell you this, God wants to deliver you from any of, that, any of the things on that list and any of the things you think relate to that list. And we all experience them, uh, but it really is, uh, it's really God's way of speaking to us saying, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we'll talk about that together this Thursday night. So with that, turn with me. Luke 24. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. It's already pre-marked. It should be pre-marked to Luke 24. Anyone need a Bible? Raise your hand. We'll get one in your hand. It should be there ready for you. Luke 24. I'll just read the first 12 verses. We're going to go all the way to verse 27, but we'll just start off with the first 12 the last um, five or six weeks, being in the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal and two, well, almost three full weeks uh, in the cross or the trial of Jesus, then the subsequent crucifixion and then his time on the cross, I feel like I can exhale a giant spiritual exhale to come to chapter 24. Um, unless you've labored over the word and preached the word, uh, it's hard to explain. But I can tell you this, uh, I have a greater appreciation after the last five weeks of the cross than I did even before that. And I've been saved for 21 years now, and I hope that every time I, I go back to the cross, I have a deeper appreciation for it. I know, I, I know that I do. I know that God has spoken to me greatly, and uh, if I know one thing... I know that I bring absolutely nothing to the table but what he did for me on the cross, and, and the same is true for you. But we want to read now uh, what takes place after Jesus has been laid in the tomb, everybody's down, everybody's sad, everybody thinks it's over, but let's take a look at what takes place next, verses 1 through 24, Luke 24, verses 1 through 12 actually, sorry. Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, same as today, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. 
And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, two mighty angels. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. By the way, when you're afraid, a good thing to do is bow your face before God. It's a good place to start. Because he actually will always say, fear what? Fear not. Let's go on. They bowed their face to the earth, and they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Oh, isn't that a great question? I love how God, Jesus, and angels ask questions they already know the answer to. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee? Have you forgotten what he told you? Saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things, the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Still happens today, doesn't it? You tell people about Jesus, it seems to them as what? Idle tales, and they don't believe you. Well, I don't think that's true. But Peter arose, and he ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. Lord, we pray right now. We ask right now. We believe right now that your spirit wants to speak well beyond anything I put in notes, well beyond anything anything I have prepared. Your Spirit wants to speak to the heart of each and every person here. You have something for everyone. Lord, you want to draw us into the presence of the true and living God through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that here this morning, for only you can do it. I bring nothing to the table, but Lord, we want to sit at your table and hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wish we had time to read this same account in John's gospel, Matthew's gospel, and Mark's gospel, because each one of them have a little different uh, insight that the other didn't share. But we don't have that time, but let me see if I can set the scene for you. You know, we've been looking at the last few weeks what took place. Jesus has just died, one of the most brutal forms of death a man could ever die. He literally would have been covered from head to toe with blood, from the beatings and the scourgings on his back, the crown of thorns on his head, the nails in his hands and feet. Uh, He was literally pummeled into just a body that is hanging there with no strength, his blood draining out, his life draining out. Looking on, all of his followers They felt like their life was draining out as they're watching their master, their rabbi, their teacher, their savior, who they thought was going to be their king. They see him dying and gives up his last breath. It is finished, and they think it is finished. He meant it was finished differently than they might have perceived that statement, right? Sometimes when you hear someone say it is finished, you think, oh, it's over. Our team lost. When Jesus said it's finished, it wasn't a... I I have nothing left to give. He said, it is finished. Satan's finished. But they didn't know this yet. 
they're still dejected. They are still down. They are still very sad. They are still perplexed as to why God would allow this to happen. Now, Jesus had even told them these things, but again, there's a blank. There, we have in our minds, we have blockers in our head to the true truths of God. Satan's, we, we believe the dumbest of things. You ever seen how people repost stuff on Facebook they didn't even research for a second? And later, like, sorry, that wasn't true, you know, that kind of thing. We'll believe that stuff, but when God says, I'm going to do this or thus, I don't really believe those things. But everyone is afraid what's going to come next, deeply saddened, mourning. The women are preparing spices. They're preparing spi- you don't prepare spices for a living body. They're preparing spices because, again, they, they know that as the body decays, they want to just put more and more aroma They don't ever want Jesus to smell that way. They go early in the morning. Remember, he had to be put into the grave before the sun set. But he rises on that early morning. He rises. The Scripture tells before the sun rises, he rises. Because he's greater than the sun, isn't he? You know, they say when the the sun rises, all lesser lights go out. The S-U-N. But when the S-O-N rises, you can be sure every lesser light will go out. And so Jesus rises before the even sunrises, early in the morning, just before the sunrise, he's out of the tomb. And he has angels stationed there to greet anybody who comes. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they've fallen like dead men. Once they came to themselves, they ran to the authorities to tell what had happened. But everyone is gone except for these two angels. And these women, they come early in the morning, around the sunrise, Jesus is already out of the tomb, and they come there, and they find the stone rolled away. They don't know what to make of it. But when they see two angels, the angels are there to say, hey, why are you seeking Jesus? Did he not tell you he would rise from the dead? Did he not say these things? He's risen. Our Savior's risen. Our Savior's alive. He's not in the grave. C.S. Lewis said, if the thing happened, speaking of the resurrection, it was the central event in the history of earth. C.S. Lewis had a genius IQ. You know that you know, he wrote uh, so many you know, literary works that believers, mere Christianity being one of the greatest. But he's right. If this really happened, brothers and sisters, it did. It's the central event in the history of the earth. It absolutely happened. It's the central victory of all who call on his name. It's the central victory for the church. It's the central victory for us personally. Michael Ramsey said, no resurrection, no Christianity. You don't have a church. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should close this place down, get rid of the property, and make it into a neighborhood or something. But he did rise from the dead. When Christ arose, power was released. Not only were two powerful angels sitting there testifying of his great power, but power was released. Get this, debts were paid. Penalties were wiped out. Freedom had been secured. Chains had been taken off. Joy was springing forth. But in the wee hours of the morning, only the angels 
knew what Christ had secured for his bride. The angels knew it. They're like, you guys, wait till you find out what he's done for you. We're not allowed to give all the facts. We're just allowed to tell you, he ain't here. He told you he'd do this, and you didn't believe him. We could tell you the rest, but you'll meet him soon, and he'll tell you the rest. You're not going to believe what he's done for you. What he had redeemed with his own blood and his death-defying omnipotence. But what his followers would soon find out and understand is what we want to appreciate and appropriate here this morning. I'm not here to do the historical deep dive on it. We could do that. I want the resurrection to touch your heart, for God to really speak to you. And we want to look at three things here this morning that Jesus secured, and he wants us to appropriate in our lives. If you're taking notes, the first one, death defeated. Actually, roll that up. It's, I ha- it should say sin defeated, and then come back to that one. So go up one. There we go. Sin defeated. We'll look at death second. I want to look at sin defeated. At the cross, Jesus gave a stamp. Think about him on the cross. You can think about the cross as this. The cross was Jesus' stamp of guaranteed payment. The cross was that guarantee to pay. But not like you and I, we guarantee to pay and things could go wrong. This was a 100% guaranteed payment. When he said it is finished, that was his statement. This will be paid. Guaranteed payment. But with the resurrection, the stamp would read, payment complete. Payment complete. The guarantee was already there, but the completion had not yet happened had to happen with his resurrection. See, the cross and the grave, they're two sides of the same coin. You have a coin, they, they have two definitive sides, but you're still holding the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. Both the cross and the grave, they're immeasurably valuable, but only together. Does that make sense? The cross is immeasurably, immeasurably valuable. The resurrection, immeasurably valuable but their value is only together. A cross without a resurrection leaves us in sin. A resurrection without the cross leaves us in sin. Either way, cross needs the resurrection. Resurrection must have the cross. This was God's will. This was his plan. This is what he sent his son to the earth to do. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes on this. The Apostle Paul, at this point, was not a Christian. Not long after this, he would begin to hate Christians before he would become one himself. But he would later write on these things, this understanding that the cross and the resurrection each are dependent upon the other, and Jesus secures both. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Once again, there's no resurrection, close the bookstore down, close the church down. I go back to the business world, just go on with your life. But if there really is a resurrection, we got some rejoicing to do, don't we? 
Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still, still in your sins, that also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished also. So that means your grandmother who was a believer and anyone before that was a believer, they would also be dead in their sins too. They believed in a false hope. In this life only we have hope in Christ. If in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of most men pitiable. Pitiable. This is true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we really are wasting our time. But verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying it would be tragic. There was no resurrection, but you can be sure there was a resurrection. Leave your space, uh, leave your spot there in case we want to head back to there. But in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes this as well, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father. He gave himself, that's the cross, for, he gave himself and that he might deliver us from this evil age, that's the resurrection. In 1 John 2, 2, John writes, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also the whole world. Jesus is the only one that could give his life and it pay for sins, and he's the only one that could raise his life and wipe out those sins. I don't know about you, you ever wonder why God even did it this way? I have. Why crucifixion? Why couldn't it have been something else? Now, in history, we kind of look back now, and we kind of realize that there may have never been, this is argued among historians, there may have never been a more dominant world empire than the Roman Empire because it touched Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and spread all the way out. And its tentacles, even though it didn't control other parts of the world beyond that, it still touched other parts of the world. So the reverberation of Jesus dying and raising the dead in the Roman Empire truly could spread over the whole world, and God would do it in a time when there wasn't smartphones and TV. And yet the whole world, these disciples would take it all over the planet on the Roman roads. But beyond, beyond even when it happened at the time of the Roman Empire, you know, that, that God would require, he was the one that said, this is the way, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, this is the way the sins will be atoned. I'll send my only begotten son, he will die for those sins, and he'll raise from the dead. No one asked God, say, hey, here's what I propose you should do. It was the will of the Father. And it had to be a certain, couldn't be a hanging, had to be shed blood. Even David wrote in Psalm 22, it had to be the pierced hands and feet. It was prophesied. It had to be a specific way. Just like the animal sacrifices in the temple, the tabernacle, had to be very, very specific. You can say, well, I'm going to cut out this step or this step. Then it nullified the sacrifice. Everything had to be precise. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifested 
manifested, brought down out of heaven, revealed to mankind to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The sacrifice had to be sinless. Couldn't have a single sin. Couldn't have even had a single meditation on a sin. Can you believe that? That Jesus lived his whole life and never even once sinned, not once in the mind. Never had a slanderous thought about someone. Never had a single word of gossip pop out. Never had even the tiniest bit of lust. Never had even this tiniest false word come out of his mouth. Nothing. Complete sinlessness. John said he was manifested because there was no sin in him. Not only did Jesus conquer sin, through him now, we don't have to be controlled by sin. So, If you're taking notes under the sin defeated, understand that he defeated the power of sin in our life. Now, there's still sin in this world, isn't there? There's still sin in you and me. The most righteous person in here, God could tell who lives the closest to Jesus in this room. I don't know who that is. But I'll tell you this. Even though there's still sin in this world and there's still sin in us, Jesus said you can have victory over it. You don't have to be controlled by it anymore. You don't have to hate people anymore. You don't have to be addicted to things anymore. You don't have to. You don't have to be in fear anymore. You don't have to live the way the rest of the world does. You don't have to covet every new thing that comes out. You can actually say, I don't need the next iPhone. I'm fine with this one. Boy, people get themselves into so much trouble because of the desires of the flesh, right? But Jesus said, I'm going to deliver you from that. You don't have to live that way. Romans 6, 14, Paul wrote on this. He said, for sin shall not have dominion over, shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. You're under grace. Oh, I tell myself all the time, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. I can't give this up. My grace is sufficient for thee. I can't stop this. My grace is sufficient. I can't stop thinking this way. My grace is sufficient. He said, sin shall not have dominion over you. Charles Spurgeon said, at the sight of his death, if it is a true sight, the death of all love is the death of all love of sin. A sight of his death, if it is a true sight, is the death of all love of sin. We start out loving sin. Before we get saved, you remember, um, before we got saved, we found sin to be very attractive. And we, we went out of our way to, to appropriate ourselves for it. I remember when we were uh, living in Miami and we were, before we were saved, we liked to go out at like 10 o'clock at night. It's true, not, good things don't really happen after midnight, generally speaking. There's not, unless it's a prayer meeting, and there's not many of them at that time. Uh, but, um, you know, we would, you know, me and my friends and my wife and her friends, and, uh, and you, you would l- go looking for sin. And then you get saved, and you do the complete opposite. You do everything you can to stay away from it. Because the Holy Spirit says that stuff doesn't have dominion over you anymore. You wisely take a different turn. Solomon writes that if you're in Proverbs, he'll talk about the, the man that foolishly goes down that dark alley looking for sin. We start to go a different direction 
once we've seen the cross, we see that it, it, it'll only destroy us. And we really do realize that we've, it never does make us happy anyway. It really doesn't. Every college kid that hugged a toilet last night that said, I'll never drink again, because they're home for college break right now. And all summer, because I remember my college summers, it was one night of party the entire summer. I, I see all the college cars in my neighborhood now. They're everywhere. And you can tell which car. They're smaller. They got a lot of stickers on the back. Um, you can tell that they haven't been washed. There's like McDonald's Big Mac boxes inside. There's all this kind of stuff. So you know they're home for the summer. And every one of them that we're saying, they're swearing off drinking this morning, will still go and drink tonight. Because they're under, they're under the control of the enemy. They've not been born again yet. So they really think that that's going to make them happy. And then on worse, they'll make some really big mistakes somewhere along the way that will really cost them. And then God will someday, if they come to their senses, he'll clean all that up too. Isn't that great? Let's look at that. Sin was defeated. Let's look at the next. Take me back since my slides are out of order. This is what happens when you have an imperfect human being, right, folks, right here. <laughs> Death was defeated. Perfection wasn't guaranteed. Uh, what happened is I had it in an arrangement, and I switched it at the last minute because I felt like the Lord wanted to switch it. And I switched it in my notes, but not in the slides. So nevertheless, death was defeated. Let's look at that next. Jesus, he had to die, and he had to be put to death. There was no pop, or there was no possibility of salvation. We've, we've made that clear. But he also, he had to rise from the dead, or that substitution of his shed blood is incomplete. There could be no resurrection of the saints to eternal life unless the eternal God coming in human flesh abolished the power of death. Death has a power, doesn't it? You know, the having done funerals, having been with people as they're taking their last breath, it is tough. And, not, and you're not even the one dying. It's tough to even be in that presence. You think of the military men that have seen, you know, we, we had Pastor Raul Reese from uh, Calvary Chapel on the West Coast share, and he, he served in Vietnam, and I can't remember, what did he say, 45 of his friends or so had, had died in his, in his sight there in Vietnam, and and uh, he couldn't even get over the nightmares. And, and many, many soldiers uh, still deal with post-traumatic stress and things like that because the power of death, it grips a person. But Jesus abolished that power. It's only when someone gets born again and God changed their heart that they can be freed from even things they've seen and experienced. Because death is so final and it's so brutal. Jesus, remember, he had raised people from the dead. Remember? He raised Lazarus. He raised a little girl. He had raised people from the dead. But those people that he raised from the dead, they would still die again, wouldn't they? They didn't raise and then never die again. They're not, they're not with us now. Nobody has ever come up out of the grave on their own, never, ever except one. He had already raised people from the dead, but he came up out of the grave on his own. No help. Nobody until Jesus Christ had ever done this, and since has never done it. Muhammad, he's still in the grave. Buddha, he's still in the grave. Confucius, still in the grave. 
The Egyptian pharaohs that thought they were gods, they're still in the grave. The Roman emperors that they worshipped as gods, they're still in the grave. Hundreds and thousands of prior leaders and, and dictators, monarchs, still in the grave. Pilate and Herod who gave the sentence along with all the other people, still in the grave. The very Pilate that thought he could wash hands, he's in the grave. Jewish leaders consenting to his death, still in the grave, all in the grave. But Jesus is alive. He's not in the grave. His grave's empty. Paul E. Little said this, he said, Jesus' supreme credential to authenticate his claim to deity was his resurrection from the dead. Five times in the course of his life, he predicted he would die. He also predicted that he would die and that three days later he would rise from the dead and appear to his disciples. That was his credentials. No one else has ever risen from the dead, but Jesus not only rose, he said, here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be betrayed, and I'll rise three days later. Watch it happen. And even when it happened, they still couldn't believe it had happened. It seemed like idle tales because no one had ever done this. It was unfathomable that anyone could actually break death and walk out of a grave. John chapter 10. We talked about, um, well, let me read the verse and we'll talk about something I mentioned last week. In John 10, verse 17 and 18, Jesus says these words. John 10, 17 and 18. Write these verses down if you're taking notes. Good to go look at. Highly encouraging. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Whoa. There is, if Jesus spoke these words in our presence, we would all fall out of our chair. There is more power in this statement than all the nuclear bombs on planet Earth combined. Last week, I had mentioned, and it wasn't in my notes, I'm up here preaching, I had mentioned that when, the, when you look at the cross, to just think, just try and imagine how much power it took to stay on the cross and to lay down on the cross. Because I started to think, in my mind, the Spirit was just stirring me. I started to sense it seems like even more power to lay on the cross and stay on the cross than to explode off the cross and consume everybody. And then I had completely forgotten that Jesus actually says this. Look at it again. You might even turn there. John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus says, I have power to lay it down. Jesus is making the point. It takes incredible supernatural power to lay your life down the cross and to stay there when you have the power to avoid it and destroy your enemies. We know this is true. That's why we love Chuck Norris movies. When one guy beats 50. That's why we think that a Bruce Lee movie, no matter how much our mind tells us this really couldn't happen, we still love it when one guy takes out the entire room of people and bullets miss him and everything goes just right and the leg kick is perfect and every single thing. And we we watch a Jason Bourne movie and we think, wow, I would love to be that. Nobody would ever cross me again. And Jesus has that kind of power 
infinity. And he said, you don't understand. You'll understand at the resurrection how much power it took for me to lay down my life and stay on the cross. And then you're going to understand how much power it took me to burst out of the grave. And I had the thought, this is equal power. This is equal power. The immovable force and the, you know, irresistible object, Jesus is both. Power to lay it down, power to raise it up. Which one's more powerful? I don't know. You can ask him when you get to heaven. All I can say is they seem like equal power. Because he said, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. But we, you and I, we need not only the equal power, but we need this equal finished work, don't we? That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes on, uh, I'm going to turn back there. 1 Corinthians 15, and he says... He goes on to say this in verse 26. Um, actually, let me read verse 24, 25. Listen, to these. these are very, very deep and powerful words that Paul writes. He said, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end and a rule to all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Paul said, of all the enemies in the world, every ruler, every kingdom, every evil thing that's ever come, death is the last enemy, and Jesus destroys it. The resurrection, the deed paid in full, death was defeated. He's already defeated it. Our brothers and sisters are already in heaven with him. Uh, even before the resurrection. He brought Moses and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration because his your and I word, we have to kind of we have it has we have to kind of wait till the bill is paid. God says, No, my son is good for it. I'll bring them down now. And they'll meet you on the way to the cross. They actually ministered to Jesus before the cross because he was guaranteed to complete the work. And he destroyed the power of death. The last thing I want to look at this morning. Is the rubber meets the road where we live in right now. Let's look at the next part of the text, verses 13 through 27. Follow along with me, verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling on the same day to a village of Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they talked together about these things which had happened, so it was that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, Jesus appears out of nowhere. We have an awesome Savior, don't we? He just, who's this guy? Where, where did he come from? Uh, we were walking. It was just the two of us. All of a sudden, he's beside us. Didn't dawn on him either. Because their eyes were restrained. They didn't even understand. They'd just seen the miraculous. So they did not know him. They couldn't even recognize. They knew who Jesus, they'd spent time with him, but they couldn't recognize him. God had purposely restrained their eyes. I do not know why, but he did. Verse 17. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Now, once again, Jesus is asking a question that he already knows the answer to. Why are you guys walking and talking so sad? You guys look really depressed. 
And the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who have not known the things which happen these days? <laughs> He's the only one in history that's actually done what he just did. And they said, Are you the only one that doesn't know what happened? No, I'm the only one that it happened to. And I'm the only one that actually exploded out of the grave. But, but he goes on. He said, What things? This is Jesus talking. What are you talking about? What, what things? By the way, God's going to ask you questions in your life that gets our attention. Hey, what are you doing with yourself and your time these days? What, what things? No, no, I'm asking you what things. What things are you doing? What things are you working on? What things are you laboring over? Anyway, he said, they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people. You not heard of this guy? And how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, you can underline it in the Bible. I have that underlined in mine. But we were hoping. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since it happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. It wasn't a vision. They really were angels, but these guys think it's a vision. And they said that he was alive, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, speaking of Peter and John, and found out it was as the women said, but, they did not, but him they did not see. Then he, look what Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. These two guys were really sad. These two guys were discouraged. They couldn't even see that it was Jesus who was talking to them. They thought that everything they believed in was going up in smoke. Fears, doubts, unbelief, discouragement, sadness. They had it all. They didn't know that Jesus had defeated all that. Death, as I mentioned, isn't gone. We still see it in our life. We still see it around us. But death is defeated. Even though people still die, death is defeated. Even though people are still sad, sadness is defeated. All of these things, discouragement, fear, doubts, sin isn't gone, but yet sin is defeated. Does this make sense? You have to see it from God's perspective. Sin Death, doubt, fears, all these things have been defeated, but yet we still have to deal with them in life. And as Jesus walked along the road with these two men to Emmaus, what they couldn't see at the time, that everything they had hoped for had already been accomplished. Everything that they needed was standing in their midst. The word that they needed was more real now than ever, they didn't know it. They were hoping. They were hoping that he, it was he, that Jesus was everything he said he was going to be. He was going to do everything he said he was going to do. Their hope had already been completed. They just didn't know it. 
they didn't know that the birdcage door was already open for their life. That they could fly out now. They didn't know that. Their faith had been shaken. So many Christians are hoping for some peace and some power and some joy in their life. We were hoping that we would have some peace, some power, some joy, but I'm not experiencing any of those things. So many Christians don't know, or maybe they've forgotten, that it's already been secured by the power of the risen Savior. It's already there. He's defeated not only sin, he's defeated not only death, and that would seem to be enough because that's what we need for eternal life. But all the remaining darts that still fly in our direction and will fly in our direction until we meet him face to face, they've been defeated too. And that's why Jesus says, why so sad? Why are you guys so sad? Brothers and sisters, we have victory in Jesus. It's not just a song. It's true. But only, only if we appropriate the victory he has secured through him. Understand this. The victory is only available if we appropriate it. You can have a life preserver sitting there, but if you don't grab it before you jump in the water, it does you no good. I saw it. I could tell you what color and brand it was. You have to appropriate it. We have victory in Jesus. We can appropriate him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Yesterday I went for a morning run. This year, for whatever reason, God's allowed me to run again. It's not bothering my neck. Um, so I've, I've been run- And it's definitely been the Lord. He's just had me go run, and I pray, and I praise, and I pray, and I praise, and I talk to God, and, and I learn things looking at birds and everything else, and God just speaks to me through Scripture and all these different things. And I was running yesterday morning, just talking to God. I was praying to him. I was asking him for help and strength. And uh, while I was considering God and the power of the resurrection, so I was just meditating on this passage, meditating on the resurrection. And as I was running and just thinking about the tomb, the empty tomb and the resurrection, I'm going down this wooded path, little gravel path. There's woods on one side and a lake on the other side. And then it gets real wooded on both sides at one point. And I thought of the disciples, I thought about Peter and John, how they ran on that path to the tomb. And I felt like I was running, and in my mind, I thought, I'm running to the tomb. I'm running to the empty tomb. And the train in my mind, all of a sudden, the next thing that comes into my mind, I start remembering the cross. And these words come into my mind immediately. He says, we kneel at the cross, we run to the tomb, the empty tomb, and we wait for the Holy Spirit. We kneel at the cross. That's where the power starts. We run to the empty tomb. That's where the power starts to get exponentially great. And we wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when it is explosive and all the world hears the gospel. What I didn't have a thought in as I start, I didn't start praying, Lord, give me a brand new Mercedes Benz. <laughs> Lord, give me the most perfect life. All I could think of is that the cross and the empty tomb and the Holy Spirit would give power and peace, power and peace, power and peace. You can't buy power and peace. Apple doesn't sell it. 
Bud Light doesn't sell it, right? None of those people sell it. Mercedes doesn't sell it. You watch these car commercials, you would think that your life is going to be perfect if you got that car, especially when Matthew McConaughey's driving it. Because he's so good looking and his life is perfect, and you're thinking, why can't I have that? And God says, you need the cross, you need the empty tomb, and you need the Holy Spirit. You don't need a new car. I believe the Spirit laid these things on my heart. And you see, as I was pondering, which means to meditate. Folks, you have to meditate on Scripture. You cannot just read it over a bowl of Cheerios. You have to meditate on it. Well, I read for two verses at breakfast, and I didn't feel anything. You haven't meditated. That, Psalm 1, thy word have I meditated on. Day and It's the delight. Day and night I meditate on it. See, the power of God and the impact of the resurrection, it was as if the Spirit reminded me that this is a three-part work, and Jesus delivered all three. Did you know he delivered all three? He delivered the cross, he delivered the resurrection, and in Acts chapter 2, he delivered the Holy Spirit. He said, you have to wait. He had to wait 10 days in Jerusalem until he poured it out. But it requires what? Faith and submission. Faith and submission. Faith and submission. Number one, when we kneel at the cross, what does that mean? What does it mean to kneel at the cross? I kneel at the cross for salvation, but I keep coming back to the cross not for salvation. I'm already saved. Why do I come back and keep kneeling at the cross? Why should you come back and keep kneeling at the cross? When we're kneeling at the cross, it tells Jesus we are dying to self. Romans 12.1, living sacrifice. When you kneel at the cross, you die to self. And said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, a lot less. Thinking of him more. You're dying to self at the cross. In, Rome, uh, in John 12, 24, Jesus said these words. These are my, not my words. These are Jesus' words. These are words that you and all have to embrace if we want the peace and power of God in our life. John 12, 24, he said, most assuredly, in other words, definitively, Underline it in your Bibles. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. When we die to self, we will flourish in the Lord. The power and the blessing of God is released when we submit unto the cross and we die to our will. Number two, I mentioned at the cross, running to the empty tomb. What does that look like, spiritually speaking? I wasn't really literally running to an empty tomb. There's no empty tombs in my neighborhood. Uh, if there were tombs, we probably wouldn't want to live in the neighborhood. But um, spiritually speaking, I'm thinking of that. When we run to the empty tomb, there is power in remembering and reminding ourselves that Jesus has defeated every form of darkness. We have a lot of fears coming, don't we? That's why I'm doing the workshop this Thursday night. By the way, the workshop's just as much for me as for you. So if you don't come, I'm still doing it. Because I don't care if you're a pastor or you're sitting in, we don't pews, but chairs, whatever. We all have forces of darkness come against us. But the empty tomb reminds us he defeated every form of darkness. See, once the stone rolls, light comes in. When the stone's there, it's pitch black in there. Can't remember what was the, the explorer that when he was in Antarctica, 
and they got stuck there. He said the most horrifying, difficult thing was to be in a place that was freezing cold and there was zero light. Jesus cast out that darkness with the empty tomb. In Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Do you believe that? The empty tomb is the securing of that. The empty tomb is faith building. And then the third and the final one, we need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When we wait on the work in the Spirit, when we, in humility and obedience in a relationship, we wait on the Word of God. We wait in the Word of God. Let's stop. We need to stop at waiting for just a couple of minutes. Why is this so important? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Notice what Jesus does. Notice what he does. Look at verse 27. And beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded them all the scriptures concerning himself. He took them through the Bible. He didn't have a Bible handy. He knows the Bible. He didn't need the scrolls. He is the scroll. Some Christians will say, well, I just read a little devo. I read a proverb a day, maybe a verse in the New Testament. One of the first things Jesus did after the resurrection was he led the most amazing Bible study maybe ever given here, and he took two men through the entire scriptures, the entire Old Testament. Now, how did he do this in a short period of time? Much of this is supernatural. I get that. He reveals a lot. I don't know that he covered every single verse. That's not what this text says. It says it took him through the scriptures. So he took him through every section of the Old Testament and revealed himself through all the scriptures. Didn't mean he read every verse, but still there's a supernatural. It didn't seem to have been enough time to pull all this off, but Jesus does a lot of things in his six weeks out of the resurrection that are supernatural, walking through walls, all kinds of other things. But he takes them through the whole Bible. If you're saved, I'm pretty sure God wants you to read the whole Bible. Start going through it. He doesn't care if you finish some of the other books, but he does care that we finish this book, his book. And he wants us to wait for his spirit to speak to us. But in concert with the word, he wants us to spend time in prayer, patiently waiting for his supernatural touch in our lives. And folks, it will come if we wait for it. It really will if we've died to self at the cross, if we've rejoiced in the word of God, if we've claimed his victory over sin and death, if we wait through the silent times. And there are some silent times. Amen? Got to wait through the silent times. The mundane times. The mundane times, the boring times. You've got to still wait in the word of God. Still pray in those times. I don't feel like praying because everything's just boring. Pray anyway. Press into him. Even when everything is fine in our life. And I believe this. In fact, I know it's true. Jesus will release power and peace in our lives. He really will. Verses 25 and 26, look what Jesus says. These guys didn't seem to be acting rebellious or foolish, but Jesus says, oh, foolish one, slow of heart. You know, Jesus, he chastens a lot of people in the Bible, doesn't he? Because he looks past our veneer and past our excuses and says, the bottom line is you don't believe what I say. The bottom line is I told you guys what I would do, and you didn't believe it. He still loves them. 
he loves these guys. When we read the rest of it, I mean, these guys, he's building them up. But he's saying, look, the bottom line is you just don't believe the thing. You tell people you believe this stuff, but you don't believe it. Oh, foolish ones. Ought not the prophets, ought not all these things that were written happen, ought not the Christ have suffered? I told you that these things would happen. They still don't even know it's him. We've got to get to that in our final, in our final study. They still don't know it's Jesus. We can be so foolish in rejecting the clear truth that God's already given us, can't we? We can be so foolish. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, which is the manner of some, but even more so as you see the day approaching. How many Christians are gathering together more Christians now than they were tens of years ago? Far less. In the book of Acts, they met together far more than we do today, but Jesus said, when I come, you should be meeting more than when... I had first risen from the dead. But the opposite is happening in the United States of America today. People are meeting with Christians less now than they used to. So in other words, they say that verse doesn't matter. And Jesus would say, you foolish ones, I told you to meet even more when I'm about to return. And you said, well, I don't think that that's what you really meant. But it's exactly what he meant. And so we can be foolish too. And we reject the very simple truths that God's given to the prophets, the apostles, and the very work of Christ. Even as Christians, we're all guilty of this, we try again and again and again and again to find joy and peace somewhere other than Jesus. We're all guilty of it. We try again and again to find peace and joy somewhere else, and as we neglect Christ to be fulfilled by other things, we fall back into the defeat of unrest, fear, doubts, and discouragements, and then we wonder, why? Why? And Jesus says, oh, foolish ones, ought you not believe what I have written? Ought you not follow what I have said? Ought you not abide in me, as John 15 says? And meanwhile, Jesus stands there ready, able, victorious, willing to meet your every need and my every need, our every need. H.A. Ironside said, Christ is a substitute for everything, but nothing is a substitute for Christ. Nothing's a substitute for Christ. You can go on a six-month vacation, get massages every morning and every evening, have somebody read sweet lullabies to you, and when you come back, within two weeks, everything will be back on fire. Because Jesus says, you can't escape this world. You can charge through it in my power and my peace. That's good to know because I don't, I'm never going to get a six-month vacation. How about you? So once you realize that none of the world's solutions actually work, you might want to fall into the arms of Jesus. And me too. Are you convinced that the risen Jesus is your everything? Seriously. Are you convinced that the risen Jesus is your everything? Or do you think if I got a $40,000 bonus this year, that would solve my problems? It won't. But Jesus can. Are you convinced he's your only hope in this life? Are you convinced he's your only hope for the remainder of today, May 29th, the remainder of tomorrow, May 30th, next week, tomorrow, next year? As the hymn says, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Are you kneeling in your heart and in your will and your prayers at the foot of the cross? Are you running with need and expectancy to the power of the empty tomb? Are you waiting in prayer and in the word and in fellowship with other believers? 
You need it. Men, you need to be in fellowship with other men. Women, you need to fellowship with other women. Are you doing these things, waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? They were told to wait together, Acts chapter 1. Don't trust your feelings either. Trust and obey. Martin Luther was asked, did he feel saved? He said, I don't feel it, but I know that I am. Knowing that the word of God is true, not, well, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to work. It'll work. He rose that we would walk in victory of his resurrection, and it comes through faith, and it comes through surrender. Don't ever forget that. There are no substitutes for the resurrected Jesus, but the peace and the power is worth it. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Lord, We don't need substitutes. We need Jesus. We thank you that you've conquered sin. We thank you that you've conquered death. And Lord, you've even conquered all the emotions and feelings and difficulties and doubts, discouragements that we go through. Lord, forgive us for being foolish and trying to appropriate the armor of this world, Saul's armor, Instead of the armor that you give us, maybe a few smooth stones called the cross, the empty tomb, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that anyone here that feels defeated would instead appropriate the victory of Jesus Christ today. And Lord, we start walking differently. We start obeying your word, getting into your word, following your word watching you do miracles in our lives, our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, our co-workers. Lord, we need the power of the resurrection in this church and the outpouring of your spirit. We ask these things in your name.